It's wonderful to be in the field. Um, whenever we came down here for Pentecost, I said to Stu, it was like the opposite of PTSD. And I said, I don't know what that word is. And he said, I think that's called a memory. And <laughs> I said, maybe, yeah. But it was funny when we came back down here for, for our gathering on Pentecost, I, f- I felt like I had like a physical uh, sort of reaction, but it was good. Um, and it is, it is quite uh, incredible to be back here. Um, I was chatting with, uh, we've uh, twin boys here at 10. We were talking about something. They, asked, they just ask questions constantly. And uh, they, were, they asked me a question driving somewhere. And I said, when's this going to happen, Dad? And I said, soon. And then they started a conversation with each other. And they said, when he says soon, he means like six months or a year. And um, I said, well, what's soon to you guys? They're like tomorrow. Um, anyway, it does feel like uh, years are getting shorter. It doesn't feel that long ago since we were here. But um, just at the, the start of Stu's kind of call to worship, I really felt like um, the Lord just spoke something to me that's not what I want to teach into tonight, but I actually think it's really important before we jump into the scriptures, which, and the, the word was this, I felt like God said, uh, this is not a remnant, it's a seed. And I kind of had that, like, what does that even mean? This is not a remnant, this is a seed, as if maybe some of you felt like, why does he keep looking around at us and we're trying to worship? But um, see, a remnant is what's left after a thing, but a seed's what you bury before a thing. And I actually think as a people in Ireland, we're, we actually, I think, are quite good at the idea of a remnant. You know, those that stuck it out and lasted, but I don't think that's what this is. I think this is a seed, and I really do feel like God is doing something uh, across uh, this island. Uh, people have driven all the way from places like Sligo and Galway uh, today to be, to be here, to be in this tent for what the Lord is doing at this time. Uh, this is certainly not the only thing that's happening uh, among God's people across Ireland, but it is a really significant, it's a really, really significant thing. Uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Two Kings chapter six. I'm going to um, read from verse eight to verse uh, seventeen. Come, Holy Spirit. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, "I will set up my camp in such and such a place." The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, "Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there." So the king of Israel checked on the place and indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid. 
the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we welcome you in this place. We turn our hearts and our ears towards you. And we humbly and boldly say, speak, we're listening. In Jesus' name we pray. And in Jesus' name we come. Amen. And amen. Uh, for any of you who don't know me, my family and I live on the side of a wee mountain not far from here. And uh, at the front of our living room is a window, and it looks down across a, like a, a really big kind of bog that then looks down across the sort of Lagan Valley area, and there are horses that graze uh, the bog. And one afternoon, sitting in the living room, I, I noticed at the very kind of far end of the bog, I noticed a farmer facing the same direction I was looking, just down over the valley. And to the extreme right, you can just about make out Scrabble Tower. And then as you pan round, you can see the Harlem Wolf Cranes, Napoleon's Nose on Cave Hill behind that. And you can come right across and see Loch Ney and looking up the Glenshane Pass on a really clear day. It's quite a spectacular place to sort of stand and look. And I noticed this farmer just sort of standing there, just make out his silhouette in the distance. And I was fairly busy, so I was busying around the house and... And I kept noticing him standing there five minutes, 10 minutes, come back 10 minutes later. He's now been standing there for 20 minutes. After about 45 minutes of this farmer just standing there, I started to think, this is quite, this is quite incredible. And I called Dana. I said, Dana, come here. Can you see the farmer out there? And she was like, yeah, yeah I see the, see the farmer. I said, that man hasn't moved for nearly an hour. Just just watching. And then I started to wonder, like, what kind of life are you living where you can stand in the same place and just watch for an hour? Like all of us, we have this kind of instant news, social media, phone calls, emails, you know, all this, kids at our feet, life is busy, five minutes in one place looking in one direction, for some of us, feels like a lifetime. And, and this guy has been standing there for, for almost an hour. And Dana and I are in this amazing kind of, can you believe that Like we live in the kind of place where like, there are people that, just, that can just do that? Like, What must your inner life be like when you can take an hour of your day to just stare off in the same direction? And then, in an instant, the farmer turned sideways and his silhouette completely transformed to that of a horse. <laughs> and I, I realized for almost an hour, I was literally marveling at the backside of a horse. Ridiculous. I'm very aware. How often do we find ourselves in 
situations where what we see is completely different from reality. Like what we see, what we are convinced we're looking at is as disconnected from reality as that moment of me looking at the rear end of a horse being convinced it was a humble Yoda-like farmer. I wonder when you look at the world around you, what do you see? When you read the news, reflect on your life, observe your kids, dream about the future, what do you see? What affects what you see? What do you factor into what you see? We are living through extraordinary times. Sociologists have noticed for the first time, some argue since World War II, teenagers when they are asked now are saying that they don't think their lives when they're adults will be better than their parents. First time since the 1950s. One of my friends describes the times we're living in by the anacronym VUCA, V-U-C-A. We live in times that are volatile, uncertain, complex, and angry. I was married in 2008. The last 15 years have felt like we have bounced from one global catastrophe to the next. The word of the year for 2022 was this funny word, permacrisis. A state of permanent crisis. And commentators are observing that they don't actually think that's ending anytime soon. America has just charged a former president with 37 counts of criminal activity with a maximum penalty of 400 years in prison. The British Parliament has just formally accepted that the most senior public official in the land lied repeatedly to the public and the Houses of Parliament for years. Here in Northern Ireland, this year we're celebrating 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement. And the kind of slightly dirty secret behind that celebration is for nine of those years, we haven't had a functional government. I haven't even mentioned the housing crisis in Dublin, the challenges facing the NHS or education up here. Chuck Colson, in his epic book, How Now Shall We Live?, he says this, genuine Christianity is more than a relationship with Jesus. It's more than a relationship with Jesus. As expressed in personal piety, church attendance, Bible study, and works of charity, it is more than discipleship, more than believing a system of doctrines about God. Genuine Christianity is a way of seeing and comprehending all reality. Genuine Christianity is a way of seeing and comprehending all reality. I wonder what you see when you look around. In this passage we read a few moments ago, we find Elisha the prophet in his home place, a walled city in the hills near Samaria called Dothan. The people of God have been at war with the Arameans. They are from a place called, surprise, surprise, Aram. The king of Aram keeps planning ambushes to catch out the people of God. But God keeps telling Elisha to tell the king of Israel where the ambushes are going to happen. As you can imagine, the Aramean king is convinced there's a spy in his court reporting all his plans to the Israelites. How else would he know 
how to avoid their ambushes. Verse 11 says this, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. The ironic detail uh, in the story is it seems pretty clear that the Arameans have a spy in Israel. How else do they know what Elisha is reporting on? And so the king of Aram comes up with this clever plan. Let's find Elisha and capture him. Maybe we can convince him to be on our side. And so they find out where he is staying and they send an army to, to surround the city during the night. Elisha's assistant wakes up the next morning. He's taking his coffee on the balcony when he sees that the city they're in is literally surrounded by their enemies. I wonder, have you ever had a moment in your life when something normal, something every day was interrupted by a complete catastrophe. You're doing something that feels very familiar and then the post arrives with a bill that you had no idea was coming. The phone rings, a casual catch up you were expecting develops into a major conflict. The daily commute goes disastrously wrong. Many of you are very familiar with the truth that life can be turned completely upside down in the blink of an eye. In fact, many of us live on the absolute emotional edge because we have matured. And as we have matured, we have stared into the abyss of the fragility of life and the unpredictability of this whole thing. This is that moment for Elisha's assistant. They've been found by their enemies, and they are surrounded with no army to call on, no help to summon, no way of solving this particular problem. Our enemies perhaps don't look like armies on horseback, but our enemies of debt, relational breakdown, the mental health challenges of our kids, cancer diagnosis, or other health problems, they can strike fear into our hearts and rob us of our faith in exactly the same way as this assistant is experiencing it on that moment all those years ago. And he exclaims, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The difficulty with the scripture sometimes is you don't get the emotion, you just get the words. I suspect there may have been more than a few expletives in his actual sentence. What are we going to do? Like it's, it's over, we're done. Our enemies have found us. We are surrounded. We are helpless. There is nothing in our hands that will solve this particular problem. There's nothing we can do. Full of terror, he runs to the prophet. How do we solve this? Elisha responds in the same way we see time and time again in the scriptures when disaster appears to draw near to the people of God. What shall we do? The prophet replies, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. First of all, before we do anything else, don't do fear. Before you do anything, don't do fear. Why? Because fear robs our faith. Have you ever noticed that? 
when I am my most fearful, I am guaranteed to be my least faithful. I've noticed that time and time and time again in my life. J.R.R. Tolkien famously said this, Faithless is he that says farewell when the path darkens. Just in case you're feeling slightly pricked, I have been that way so many times in my life. Where fear appears because of some disaster that has come close. And it seems like all of a sudden faith is so elusive. Where do we go? How do we find it? How do we stoke it? Where do we get it from? This thing has intimidated it right out of us. Fear robs us of faith, and that's disastrous for the people of God. When disaster draws near, it is no trite or trivial thing to hear God speak, do not be afraid. When the world is upside down, when permacrisis has become normal, it is no trite or trivial thing to hear God speak, do not be afraid. Now, it's really important to make the distinction between being afraid and being fearful, right? Like if you go on holidays to Africa and you happen to wander off peace and come nose to nose with the lion, it's important that you feel afraid and can run faster than the person beside you. Sometimes I think we can hear these commands and think, well, what am I supposed to do? My uh, uh, kid's great aunt has been with us for the last week, uh, and they discovered that she has quite a pronounced jump reflex. And so I kept tripping over them in the living room as they're crawling around the floor as she's trying to enjoy a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, to, Wah! and she's flying everywhere. That response when something scary happens to us is completely normal and natural. When catastrophe comes, that shock is part of what it means to be human. But there's a difference between being afraid and being fearful, full of fear. Where we actually sometimes camp out in a place of fear. Places that rob us of our faith, places that we have no real reason to be in. It's so important for us to pay attention to the things that take root in our heart. And when God speaks to us in the midst of calamity or disaster, when we feel like we're surrounded by our enemies, when he says, don't be afraid, He's not saying, don't be shocked, don't be surprised, don't have that reaction. He's saying, don't stay there, don't cultivate that thing. Don't listen to the thoughts and the lies that are attached to that thing. Fear, fearfulness, it distorts our ability to see. You've been there, knew so bad that for a moment or a time, you can't seem to see anything clearly. You can't seem to think clearly. You can't even get words out, an event or an experience that becomes a mountain in your mind. And no matter where you go and what conversation you try to have, you just can't seem to get that thing out of your eyes. The prophet speaks, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha corrects his assistant. You're not seeing correctly. 
I wonder when was the last time you were offended by the Word of God? It's one of the things that I kind of look out for in my own life as an identifier of God actually speaking. When He says things that make me think, gosh, I, I didn't expect you to say that, or that makes no sense to me. I think sometimes we're in danger of the voice of God always sounds like our own voice, and that's not helpful. I would love to have some detail here about how the assistant felt when Elisha said these words. He's looking at a literal army, chariots, horses, swords, spears, just waiting for the command to take the city and kill them all. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. The people with us are more than the people with them. You can imagine the assistant's like, what is, what's he looking at? What does he see? The prophet says something that makes absolutely no sense. Some of you are facing things in your life right now. And the truth is, don't be afraid can sound like an insult. Andy, how can you possibly say that? You have no idea what I am facing right now. And you're absolutely right. For most of you, I have absolutely no clue what you're facing in your lives. Verse 17, Elisha prays. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Open his eyes so that he may see. You're right, I don't know what you're facing. I do know who you're facing if you would have eyes to see him. Verse 17 continues, Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. His eyes are opened and he sees that he is surrounded not by his enemies, but by the power and the presence of God. The problem with fearfulness is it closes the eyes of faith. Fearfulness says God is nowhere to be found. Fearfulness says God has abandoned me. Fearfulness says God is not in this place. As you look at the world, as you think of the question, what do you see? How much of the eye of fear or the eye of faith are you looking through? Do we look at what's around us or do we see who surrounds us? It is so easy to see inflation, the collapse of trust in political institutions, the mental health pandemic of our young people, wars and rumors of wars. The tides of fear seem to be in a perpetual state of rising. And these are real things that have real consequences in our lives. But we must resist the cultivation of fearfulness. In the face of all of this, I want to pray like Elisha of old. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see. Open your eyes that you may see. 
In the literal dark ages of Europe, a light flickered and grew from this land and shone into the darkness across this continent. This island literally vibrated north to south and east to west with worship, prayer, and mission. I want to pray, open our eyes, Lord, that we would see. You see, the truth is, we can go places that we have never been. Is this axiom in leadership circles sometimes that you can't take people places you've never been? It's totally not true. We can take people places we have never been. We cannot take people places we have never seen. Seeing comes before being. And we have to learn how to see. To come before Jesus and pray, open our eyes that we would see. If we're going to move together somewhere we have never been, my hunch is God wants us to see it first. To open our eyes, to see it first. That we could see broken, dead, and decaying institutions alive with the power and presence of Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord, that we could see generations committing their lives to the worship of Jesus and the practice of his way. Open our eyes, Lord, that we could see a moment of forgiveness and reconciliation sweep across this land that would change our future forever. Open our eyes, Lord, that we could see GAA delegations marching in 12th of July celebrations. Open our eyes, Lord, that we could see Protestant flute bands playing in Croke Park on All-Ireland Final Day. We can't even comprehend these things. Our imaginations don't dare let us imagine these things. It's time for us to see. The future of the church in this land is not a foregone conclusion. We are invited by Jesus to co-labor with him in the creation of something new, a place we have never been. I think his invitation to us is that we would see it. Our priorities, our paradigms, and our practices, they really, really matter. When you look across the land, it matters what you see. Because what you see will determine what you do. If all we see are enemies, threats, and challenges, then we manage decline, drift slowly into apathy, and we have nothing left to pass on to our kids. Our problem is that the Irish imagination, even among the people of God, is so often dominated by calamity, chaos, and suspicion. Just pay attention to your language for a minute or two, and you will notice this. How are you doing? Not too bad. <laughs> Goodbye. Take care of yourself now. Like it's, it's like the, the most we can possibly imagine is a future that avoids calamity. Just try this on for, for a week and watch how people react to you. When somebody asks how you're doing, respond, great. And people will start to go, what's wrong with that guy? 
Of course I'm playing, but you know it's true. And the problem is this. God's favor, his presence, and his blessing is in our future. But if all we see there is problem and chaos and calamity, we never actually get there. And we don't know how to receive it. What if our imagination was infected with the presence and power of God? What would you see then? What would you see? Can you imagine a church across Ireland? Across Ireland. North to south, east to west. Can you imagine a church on fire? Can you see it? in Tipperary, in Letterkenny, in the Midlands, in Waterford, on fire, in Dublin, in Belfast, from Cork to Coleraine, the whole thing on fire. Can you see it? Philippians 4, 13 So many of you could quote this to me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You ever notice how we are most of the time walking liars? Like we say we believe that, but then we face challenge or catastrophe. We look up and we see ourselves surrounded by enemies and we think, gosh, I have nothing for this. I don't know what to do. The the tricky thing about verses like that is that They are, in some ways, not true. Like, I can't do all things no matter how much Jesus is alive in me. I'm making peace with the fact that I'll never play rugby for Ireland. But I can do everything that God has asked me to, no matter how impossible it seems. I can do everything that God has asked me to no matter how impossible it seems, no matter how aware of my own weakness, failing, and brokenness I am, I can do everything that he asks. If we can see with the eye of faith that we are indeed surrounded by the presence and power of God, then there is an invitation set before us to move through our fears into faith. Not kind of festival hype, but real rooted, robust faith that enables us to see things and places that we have never been before, to live courageously and faithfully into the way of Jesus for the sake of our communities, to shake off apathy, unbelief, and fear, and to commit to lives of faithful worship and the service of Jesus for the rest of our lives. Genuine Christianity is more than a relationship with Jesus as expressed in personal piety, church attendance, Bible study, and works of charity. It is more than discipleship, more than believing a system of doctrines about God. Genuine Christianity is a way of seeing and comprehending all reality. That the God of the universe is alive and at work across this land, summoning his church to be buried like a seed to bear fruit 
for the sake of everyone. This weekend, we have an opportunity to see something here, as Al reminded us at Pentecost, that will help us see things there. To see something here in moments like this that fuel our vision when we get back there. And I want to challenge us to lean into and even commit to see through the eye of faith. First for yourself, then for your family, for your community, for the village, town, or city that you live, and for this land, that we could see a place that we have never been, and that we would order our lives around moving toward that thing. I want to encourage you as we unpack the themes of humility and hunger and holiness to take every opportunity to lean in, to worship with abandon, to challenge yourself when the lens of cynicism or fear rises in you and to learn how to practice faith. God's kingdom and its advance is a work of partnership between God and people. And in this moment, my sense is, for some of us, it's time to see. I'm going to invite Owen and the guys up. If you're able, please stand. Maybe if it's helpful, you just close your eyes. Thanks. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see. I'd love us to uh, just do something really practically. And um, in, in our community, we, we talk about our response with our bodies. It's not magical. It's just sometimes it's really important for us to say with our bodies what we're saying with our hearts. Like that we're, we're not supposed to be disconnected where the life in our spirit is disconnected from the life in our body. And um, maybe I just encourage you guys to put your hand on your eyes. Just as your eyes are closed, just put your fingers over your eyes. Lord, we want to see. Lord, we want to see. release you from the lens of fear 
bless you with faith. Come, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes. We want to see. We want to see. We want to see. Some of you in the business community facing uh, problems that are hard to comprehend. Bless you with sight to see. Release solutions over you. In your families, they're being ravished by health challenges. Bless you to see that you would see the power and the presence that surrounds you. Church leaders, church elders facing hugely complex challenges. Bless you to see. You would see. For some of you, uh, I really sense that there's been like a passion in you for like a, a place or a purpose. You've maybe even named it. You're maybe even working towards it or in that place. But it's like it's lived in your gut. It's like a deep passion. But this moment is about the release of sight that you would see, that you wouldn't just feel called or passionate, but that you would see a way. I bless you with sight strategic site, would you release strategy for communities across Ireland? And for those of us from, from Northern Ireland, the work of reconciliation has not been done. It's not over. We stand on the shoulders of heroes who've held back the tidal waves of violence in certain moments across the last number of decades, but reconciliation is not finished. The work isn't done. It's not over.
Jesus, would you give us eyes to see? Help us to see. Lord, we present ourselves before you. And we pray, open our eyes. Open our eyes.